news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest is the author of The Bad Kid, a 2017 Edgar Award finalist and time travel for love and profit. She grew up in Champaign, Illinois, graduated with a degree in theater from Oberlin College and has a master's degree in social work from Hunter College in New York City, where she specialized in casework with children and families. She lives in Los Angeles, California with her family. It's my pleasure to welcome Sarah Riviere. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I am so thrilled to have you because something that we don't do enough of on the podcast, and we are aware of it, is YA and perhaps middle grade as well. And some of our listeners have been like, why don't you do this? But also, we focus on the books that get pitched to us by certain publicists. And for some reason, I don't know, publicists at a lot of YA imprints haven't pitched us, but we really are hoping to remedy that as we go into the new year. So I'm really thrilled to be chatting with you. Now, before we dive in, Sarah, I'm just reading the flap copy for our listeners. So a flap copy of Sarah's upcoming book, Riot Act. Punk rock meets 1984 in the story of a group of theater kids who take on a political regime, perfect for readers who love books by A.S. King and Marie Lu. 
In an alternate 1991, the authoritarian U.S. government keeps tabs on everybody and everything. It censors which books can be read, what music can be listened to, and which plays can be performed. When her best friend is killed by the authorities and her theatre teacher disappears without a trace, Gigi decides to organise her fellow Champagne High School thespians to put on a production of Henry VI. But at what cost? Dun, dun, dun. Right, so, so much to unpack yet, Sarah, but the thing that I really want to chat about is we're really going to focus on writing YA and your advice around that and what makes something YA and what doesn't, but I would like to talk about basing this dystopian YA novel kind of where you grew up. Is this a huge tribute or kind of a giant middle finger? (laughs) It's a tribute, really. It wasn't my intention ever necessarily to write a book that was set in Champaign-Urbana where I spent the first 17 years of my life. Certainly when I left, I never intended to return and I and I haven't. But my family has lived in that part of Illinois for generations. My grandparents on both sides grew up on farms in that area, not in Champaign, but within an hour of Champaign-Urbana. And, you know, which means that their parents, the Irish immigrants, established their farms there. So my roots there are very deep. And for this project, I wanted to feel a really close connection to the story. And it seemed like the best way to access a sort of evergreen feeling of emotional power was to force myself to set it in this place where I do have so much history. And it was effective. It did prompt me to think a lot about sort of the sights and sounds and smells and accents, you know, everything that's associated with Champaign-Urbana for me. And that brought up a lot of feelings of vulnerability and safety and security and imagining this alternate universe where there is such an existential threat. It became very personal for me setting it there in that place at that time. I love that. And I love that intentionality because we're always saying on the show, be intentional with everything you do with your novel. Choose a setting that is intentional in terms of POV, all the rest of it. And I love the intentionality there. You know, as somebody who grew up in South Africa during apartheid, we had a government who censored what books could be read, what music could be listened to, what plays could be performed. So, you know, there is that personal universal element that I grew up in the 90s in this exact kind of environment. So for me, it wasn't a huge leap in terms of the world building, which we will discuss shortly. We're going to discuss a lot, but something that I really want us to dive into is pinpointing what makes something YA beyond the age of the protagonist and the audience that's going to read it. So we have people submitting for books with hooks all the time, and often there'll be a protagonist who say, eight or 12 or 16 and we get told the book is middle grade or it's YA but it reads like an adult novel and it's often difficult to pinpoint why so let's unpack that a bit I'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah and it's really actually a very simple calculus books that are intended for kids of a certain age really need to address the developmental concerns of that age So middle grade, we're looking at really group affiliation, whether it's family or friends. It's all about 
group identity at that age. Now, this is a generalization, but it's a shorthand for understanding whether your story's falling into the right category or not. So you're thinking a lot in middle grade about, you know, friends, do I fit in? Do I not fit in? You're on the verge of puberty, the cusp there. Those issues are going to be very salient, even if they're you know, every kid's a little different. So maybe in younger middle grade, they're more on the horizon. Maybe you have an older sibling whose life is very mysterious because it's in this cloud of puberty. Or maybe it's starting to happen to you. You're having an awkwardness around parts of your body developing, your skin changing, feelings for other kids that are a little different than your, than your elementary school friendships. And then a lot of cruelty can set in at that age, too, with friends. And some books really go hard at addressing those first abandonments by friends, feeling like, whoa, my friends are all changing and I'm not, or I'm changing and my other friends aren't. Things start to fit more awkwardly. It's really important that a middle grade book acknowledge and really, a lot of times you can trace through that the books are explicitly addressing those group identities, friends and family. Then as you move a little bit older into younger YA and YA, the developmental concern there is individuation. So it's not as much, we still have elements of what group do I fit into, but more, this is someone who's getting ready to be on their own in the world. So it's about how are you different from your parents or whoever is raising you? How are you separating from that? And how are you, what is your personal identity? And these issues really need to be front and center for your heroes of, of these books, for the main characters in these books. Now, you know, you can play this in endless, you know, infinite different ways. It's not like every story is a coming of age story in YA, but, you know, it's very important that those developmental concerns are addressed. And also with a slightly older YA, romance is going to look a little bit different. Who am I attracted to? Is it acceptable in my culture and society to be attracted to who I am attracted to? Gender, you know, that can be addressed younger as, as well. But all of these things about sex, sexuality, gender, and identity are so salient that if you don't address them, if they're not front and center, then your audience is not going to necessarily be drawn to your book because that's what they need in a book right now. I think books for younger people are much more explicitly helpful than the books for adults. Not that books for adults aren't helping us solve problems, but books for kids are really, it's a necessity that those stories are speaking to where they're coming from. So does that begin to answer the question a little bit? I feel like I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> Yeah, no, that really, really does. That really positions it nicely for me. But again, how do we adapt language to our audience? Like when we, we don't want to talk down to an audience. So when you're writing for middle grade or when you're writing for teenagers, because often we'll say when we read something that's written for teenagers that we get on Books with Hooks, it sounds too formal. It sounds like adults, adults speaking, adults, you know, in the dialogue or whether it's the narrator's voice. So when you sit down to write, I mean, we've all been teenagers, that's the thing. So it should be quite easy to access, but it really isn't for a lot of reasons. I don't know that I could write YA. So what's your advice there in terms of, you know, making it authentic because you're writing for teenagers, but you yourself are an adult? I would say good, clear writing 
that is emotionally connected. This, this isn't a great answer, but I think you can't overthink the kind of language that you're using. Good, clear writing should be effective for any age group. I certainly don't think about would teenagers connect with this language or not, but I am always aware of who I'm writing for, so it probably informs how I'm thinking about it while I'm writing. But I have to say, I don't know too many authors who put a lot of thought into what language they're using for their, their audience. Minus, you know, if you're writing for very young people, then you're obviously, if you're writing chapter books or picture books, there are lists of words that are, are good to use and not use. But, you know, with older kids, it's really a matter of your voice. Can you communicate clearly in your voice without talking down to your reader it really is the same as for adults. You want to do the same thing for adults as for children in that way. But beyond that, you have to listen to your readers, your test readers, your, your friends who are reading drafts, your writing group, or your editor, if you're lucky enough to be in that position. Because there, there are moments where someone will say, I don't know if a teen would say it this way. And, you know, just take that feedback. But I, I really think you can't there's no plan. I don't have a plan as to how I'm going to make sure that my writing is in a, in a kid's voice. I think it's, it's hard for me to think that way. <laughs> yeah, but something that I think happens automatically with you and with a lot of YA writers. So we talk a lot about emotionality and interiority. For adult fiction, this is important too, but I think it's even more important with YA because you want your reader to connect with your character at an emotional level. There needs to be big feelings, whatever those feelings are. So they need to be expressed in a way, whether it's through the narrator. And so we need a lot of emotionality and we need interiority. What are they thinking, you know? And that is what teenagers connect with. So is that something you feel like that's accurate? Absolutely. And, you know, for instance, in Riot Act, one of my heroine Gigi's tasks is she has a crush on someone and she's very interested in losing her virginity. She's 18. It's something she's very interested in. She's very physically invested in that happening. And I think that the best way to access that is to go back and be in that moment of what, not just thinking about what that felt like, but really remembering the feelings of that, how badly you want, you know, how, how much you want, you know, someone to pay attention to you or to see you in a sexual way as, a, as an older teen. If that was the case for you, you can reconnect with that and then inhabit that space. It's actually, you can use sort of an acting exercise to get yourself in that emotionally prepared to write the scene so that you're not thinking about it too much. You're sort of just being in that place again of like, oh gosh, you know, is he looking at me? Am I looking at him too much? Just all of those things that you may not have felt in so long, or, you know, or maybe it's not so different for some of us, but those firsts are so big in, in YA and middle grade everything's a first. And so you really have to get back to that place where you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how anything's going to feel the first time that you do it. And that puts the stakes much higher than maybe they are now for some of these types of encounters. So getting back to that is really helpful. 
Yeah, that's very true. And you know, something I thought about, I remember being that age and worrying about the mechanics of sex, for example, like, you know, where do you put your hand? What goes where while you're doing this? It was the same as with kissing. Like, where should you put your tongue? How should you move your mouth? And as I've grown up, I've thought, okay, kids today have had much more access to this kind of information, whether it's unfortunately through pornography, which is they've got much easier access to, or whether it's through TV programs, or whatever, they've, they've got a lot of access to this. So they won't feel quite as anxious about those things. But in talking with my nieces and nephews, I think having access to that much information has actually messed them up even more. And pornography especially has made young men view sex in a very, very different way, because they're seeing it portrayed in a certain way and they think oh that's what sex is about that's what it means but you know so having access to information doesn't necessarily make it easier no it, I think in fact it makes it a lot harder I think that kids feel as if they're supposed to know how it works because they've been exposed to it but besides the fact that what you would see in pornography is wildly different than the majority of sexual encounters it's also, it's adults, and it's not helpful to watch something that is so intimate. When you are preparing to do it yourself, it's going to be very different. But I think it makes kids even more self-conscious, like they're supposed to know what to do, or they're supposed to behave in a certain way. And I think it must make it so much scarier. I, I would be scared to death if <laughs> certain amount of pornography depending on what you've been exposed to but then to go into that situation I think I would have been completely overwhelmed and then perhaps self-conscious about how the experience went like I had somehow failed or or he had somehow failed if it didn't measure up to something I had seen on screen I think it must be a lot of pressure for kids yeah, very much so. And, you know, for our listeners, remember what Cece is always saying is that when it comes to characters, and this is true of people, when we're about to do something for the first time, whether it's go to Paris or whether it's, you know, seeing a play or whether it's having sex, we have expectations up front of what is going to happen. We have an idea in our mind of what this experience is going to be like. And then there is the reality after the fact. And that's something in terms of your character's interiority that you should always be focusing on. How do they imagine something's going to be when they meet their father for the first time? How do they imagine something's going to be when they kiss for the first time? And then what is it really like? Because there's always that distance between what we dream or fantasize about and what really happens. And I think that's especially true in YA, Sarah. Absolutely. And I think that when you're trying to write something like that, my advice is to really slow it down, slow it down to the smallest, you know, everything should just be very slow. Every touch, your response to every touch, every, every look, every sensual aspect of it, the sounds you're hearing, the smells, you can always cut. But if you can allow yourself to go very slowly through a first of any sort, then you can get to really things you've forgotten, particularly if you're focusing on these carnal physical details, the light in the room or the feeling of a, whatever surfaces you're standing on or sitting on or lying down on and the sheets or the whatever. If you can really slow it down, you might discover 
aspects of emotions, just that little slight coloration, that's your own voice describing this first. And then later you, you might cut everything except for that one interesting little nugget that you found. But don't be afraid, I would say, to really overwrite in a slow way the first. And then later, don't be afraid to cut the hell out of it until it's not boring or repetitive. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And remember for our listeners how we're always talking about specificity. It's the details that make something alive. Do the sheets smell freshly laundered or do they smell like cigarette smoke or stale sweat or is there a stain on them or are they torn? These are the kind of things that really burrow into our psyche and really make something come alive. And that's something Sarah does really, really, really well in Riot Act. So in terms of our intentionality, again, Sarah, something I want to ask is we're also saying be intentional with your time period. You know, if you're going to write something in 1991 as opposed to 2014, there needs to be a real reason for it. And this book takes place in 1991, but it is a dystopian world that we kind of recognize, but kind of don't recognize because of, you know, how the world has changed and because of this authoritarian government. So can you take us through why it had to be 1991 and not some other year? Yeah. And you know, my process tends to be, I start out doing something not knowing why, and then I figure it out through the process why I've made that choice. So at the outset, you know, I conceived of this book in 2015. So it was a pre- it was a pre-Trump moment. And I was thinking a lot about a period of time when I lived in Budapest, Hungary in the 90s. And I was thinking that I wanted to write a series for teens. I wanted it to be multiple books. And I wanted the stakes to be very high. And when I lived in Hungary and leading up to the time I lived in Hungary, I was very interested in authoritarianism and repression in Eastern Europe. And I was interested in the art that was made under censorship. And I thought, you know, teenagers hate authority. They're individuating, as we talked about earlier. They really, it pre pretty much across the board, it's, you know, a hatred of authority is common. What if I gave these kids authoritarianism? You know, it's not something that's familiar to American teens, particularly at that time. It was not in our conversation about our country. So it seemed like a great challenge. And then I thought, okay, so I am very familiar with Eastern Europe in the early 90s, and I was a teenager in 1991. What if I set this book then to sort of, you know, seduce and alienate readers, bring them to a time that is somewhat familiar, the music would be somewhat familiar, the fashion somewhat familiar, but also different, you know, historical fiction can really give us a fantasy uh, experience. What if I said it back then? It's a time I know very well. It's a time I kind of, you know, have some strong interest in because I was interested in Eastern Europe during those years. And let's see what happens. And when I started the project in earnest, rather than having sort of notes and outlines and thoughts, when I started actually writing it, I realized that a great hook for me into that period of time was to start, I kept a list of language. 
slang from the late 80s and early 90s. And as I started experimenting with throwing that in to the book, like making characters use some of this dated language, things started really clicking. And so it's sort of a circuitous answer to your question, but it was really that I tried it. I had the idea that it might work. I tried it and I felt it working. I felt, oh, this is cool. This is very interesting. It's sort of, in terms of American politics, the idea of a, sort of an authoritarian, a sort of a dictator rising to power after the end of the 1980s, it works. It works, you know, it's a, something that could have happened and it didn't, but what if it had? And so it started clicking. The language was very fun. I found that I was getting a huge kick out of keeping this list of slang and throwing in words like, I don't know, what, what whatever kind of crazy slang I was using in the book. God, I had a whole list just for sex. It was like knocking boots and I don't know, all these funny things, boinking. I was like amusing myself so much that I thought, well, this is keeping my energy high and it's keeping the energy on the page high. And it's unfamiliar. I haven't read this before. So because it was working, I pressed on. And then when I started showing pages to people, they lit up in a way that I hadn't seen in my previous books. And there was a lot of excitement around the project. And then I started talking with my editor at Knopf, and she was very excited about the concept. And then she read the pages, and, and they bought the two book series. And I, then I was like, wow, now I really have to finish writing this. <laughs> so essentially, it was trial and error. I thought that it might work, and it did work. Now, I'll be frank and say that as an author, I have worked slowly over the years because I am a very trial and error writer. And I have thrown away entire drafts of a novel that, you know, that hasn't worked. I've just thrown it away and started over with a page one rewrite with a slightly different concept. So I need to try things and see how they're going. And if they're not working, I'm very willing to throw them away. So I think if you're, if you're going to take that approach, at the end of the day, you need to be able to justify your choice and understand that it is a unified piece. And now I could sort of have an elaborate explanation of why it's so great to have it set in 1991. But at the time, it was just, is this sticking when I throw it at the wall? And, and it did. I love that because I'm very much the same kind of writer. You know, I go and feel and I write to figure out what the hell I want to say. And sometimes I'm able to articulate that. And sometimes it's just like, no, okay, this all needs to be deleted and we'll start again. What I loved was the music. Because again, teenagers care so much about music. Really, it defines their identity. It defines who they are. We get questioned a lot about how many lyrics are you allowed to quote before you have to pay for them, before you have to ask for permissions. I was like, few pages in was the violent femmes and I was just like hell yeah man loving it and then I thought okay well let me ask you about it because you do quite a bit of lyrics but never like a whole chunk just a phrase a line or two how did that work you know my philosophy is do it just put everything down on the page and then let someone tell you later how much you have to cut so <laughs> I was conscious that there would be a problem if I were quoting big blocks of lyrics so I tried to keep it minimal but I did want to really add a bit of the, the actual lyrics from the Violent Femme songs or the MC5 or the Raincoats or whoever. But then I guess it was really in a very late stage of the copy edit when they came back and said, okay, we need to cut a little bit here, a little bit there. But 
for the most part, everything is there that I included. And don't overthink it. Don't get caught up too caught up in the logistics. Just make it nice and then let someone tell you later how much you have to cut is my advice on that. <laughs> Excellent advice because it doesn't interfere with the creative process. It becomes someone else's problem. So I've got some other questions that I want to discuss point of view. Just something, again, a question we get a lot of is the cursing in YA. I mean, I write adult fiction and I get these angry emails in the middle of the night from somebody who calls me a degenerate because my characters swear so much, etc. How much of this can you get away with in YA? I think in the first paragraph, you have your character dropping the F-bomb, which I love personally, but a lot of people don't. So can we talk a bit about that? Yeah, I knew that would be a thing with this book, but certainly this group of friends in, in Riot Act are based on myself and my friends at that age. And we cursed up a storm. And I have not used language in my previous books, but I felt that it was important. And I did try to be strategic. You know, I, I have done a couple of passes where I've tried to cut as much to just test. If I took out the F-bomb and replaced it with something, does it still have the impact? And, you know, I've gotten the book to the point where I think everything that's there is is necessary. I'm very comfortable with language, and I know some people aren't, and I don't want to lose readers for that reason. And also, that's what this book is, you know, and the kids are facing some really huge stressors. It is personal to me. I remember my father, like Gigi's father in the book, my father was a bartender for his career in these small dive bars in, in Illinois. And I remember he cursed a lot, just, you know, in the course of speaking. And I remember as a kid, someone was banned from coming to my house because my, my dad cursed so much. <laughs> so for me, it just feels very natural. And I can't, you know, you can't take care of everybody's, you know, sensibility. I'm, I'm sorry if it alienates someone, but I think most people are pretty comfortable with it. And certainly the teenagers themselves are pretty comfortable with it. And I did ask my editor, my agent and I both asked my editor, do you want to give us feedback on this? Um, I was willing at the beginning to do even more cutting than I did. And she said, no, it's YA. It's, it's fine. And I think also it's honestly... <laughs> This is a little cynical. I did it because it was authentic to myself and to the place and time. But I think, honestly, it's a real easy, it's kind of a way to gain trust with a teenage reader, to be perfectly honest. I'm, it says right away, you know, in paragraph one, I'm not going to dumb this down for you. I know how smart you are. I know you can handle this. I know this is how you talk. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I think that that gives some room for a teenager to breathe and be inappropriate. And this is also thematically, this is a book about standing up to authoritarianism and really standing up for freedom of expression. This is a victimless crime, the F-bomb. It really is. And so is doing Shakespeare in a country where your government doesn't want you to do it. And I think it's important that throughout the book, the kids are making choices that are self-expressive that don't hurt other people. I believe in that as an author. I believe in that as a person. And, you know, so let them cuss. Yeah, what you said there is so important. Is it is it needed? Is it intentional? Is it cussing because you as the author cuss or is it cussing because these characters will be cussing in this moment and seriously with everything they've got going on if they didn't 
curse, I would feel it was inauthentic. I really would. And, you know, my other books, I've had certain characters who've sworn a lot, others who are very prissy, they never swear. I've managed to write a book now where I don't think anybody says the F-bomb. I don't think anybody even says shit, actually, which for me is amazing. But this, this book didn't need it. None of these characters needed it. And so that's, you know, where we're coming from for our listeners. If you're going to use it, use it with intentionality because there's purpose to it as opposed to just using it. All right. So writing from the point of view of a dead protagonist, right? We start off with Max. He's narrating. It's very interesting how we have this omniscient narrator we've got an omniscient point of view because he speaks in the first person but he is narrating a lot of Gigi's story and what's happening in her mind because he's telling us what Gigi's thinking etc I really love that and I wanted to check your intentionality because at the beginning of a story I always say you circle the building of your story and you find your way into it now at the point when you began writing you could have had Max's POV, and then you could have had Gigi speaking in her own first-person POV. So can you take us a bit through this unorthodox approach to POV? Yes. I chose to write the story from Max's point of view, Max as a character who's been murdered by the state. First, I made that choice because Max is who showed up when I sat down to write the book. But the reason I stuck with him is because he seemed to have this wonderful perch to give us some insight about the circumstances the kids were in. He doesn't info dump, but he can give key pieces of information when we need them about this authoritarian world. He's also extremely emotionally invested in the story because he was killed right in, you know, at the beginning of his young life. He was 18 when he was killed by the state. So he is very motivated to, to kind of complete, share some of his secrets with the main characters. He also wants to understand better what happened. He has his own arc in the story because he's so invested. And I just found it compelling. When I started writing, it became, you know, how you need a few rules when you're writing a book and maybe you discover those while you're writing. Max's voice was so strong and so sexy and so funny and so bold that I thought, okay, here's my rule. It's just Max. He has a limited omniscience. He knows what his whole life was and he knows what Gigi's seeing. He doesn't know what other people are thinking and seeing. So that's a fun perspective. How far can I push it and how alive can I make it through this dead character's point of view? And that became challenging at certain points, as every book becomes challenging at certain points, but it became challenging at certain points because Max is so vibrant. I There were times when I needed to be sure he wasn't overshadowing Gigi, who is our, our heroine of the story. It's really, it's sort of an ensemble book, but she's our heroine. And that could be challenging, being sure that her voice and her thoughts were coming through vividly 
when her dead best friend was like such a wild character. But ultimately, it felt like it was working. And again, I, t- I tested it and shared it with people. And it seemed like it was working. And because I hadn't read a point of view done quite like this before, I, I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn towards something I haven't seen done before. And I thought, let me just push this and see where it goes. And I think it allowed me ultimately to meditate on things that I find very profound. Like, can we hear the voices of the dead? What does that mean? What are they trying to tell us? And what does that mean if you're not a religious person? And it just allowed me to ask a lot of questions that I find very interesting. And it, it added a also a sense of the real stakes of the book. It is a book about, you know, life and death under a repressive regime. So to really meditate on the death part and the fact that this vibrant character isn't coming back. He's here for us to tell the story, and he, but he's gone. And I have had several readers say that they got very nervous towards the end of the book because they were going to leave Max, and they liked him so much. And then they would remember, wait, he's already dead. <laughs> and then they would feel sad. So that to me is great feedback that you can be sad about a character who has already died. And I think that's kind of an interesting literary, uniquely literary experience you could give to somebody. Yeah, he was such a singular character, really, really loved him. And again, for our listeners, we always think that first person POV is the most intimate POV because that character is telling their own story. Don't forget that something like this that Sarah's done is we get insight into Gigi that we would not get from Gigi herself because oftentimes the people around us, our best friends, etc., can see us much more clearly, can see certain things about us much more clearly than we can see about ourselves. And so this kind of POV allows for that. It allows for an even greater intimacy as opposed to a zooming out in this godlike sort of way that feels like there's a lot of space and distance between the reader and the character. So play around with POV in these ways and see how you can surprise yourself and say, how can I get even closer to this character than in first person? And that's something Sarah did here brilliantly. Sarah, when will the book be out for our listeners who would like to pre-order it? Oh, thank you for asking. The book will be published on July 16th of 2024. It's available for pre-order now. And I'm completely thrilled about that, that finally it's available to pre-order. And I'll be doing some sort of a a book tour in the summer, but I'm not exactly sure what that looks like yet. We will link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page for our listeners who would like to pre-order it. Remember, pre-orders are so, so important to a book's success. They determine how many copies a publisher prints. There's, There's a lot that goes into that. But for those of you who are wanting to see Sarah's work and who can't wait for Riot Act, we will also link to The Bad Kid and Time Travel for Love and Profit so that you can get your hands on those as well. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely so much fun. Thank you very much. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. 
They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're gonna have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is the author of the short story collection, The Marzipan Fruit Basket, the historical fiction novel Eleanor Courttown, and more recently, Stella's Carpet. Her award-winning short stories have been published in Britain, Ireland, the US, and Canada in literary journals and magazines, including Cyphers Magazine, The Hawaii Review, The Antagonist Review, and others. A dynamic workshop presenter, experienced interviewer, and freelance writer. She lives with her partner in Port Perry, Ontario. It's my pleasure to welcome Lucy E.M. Black. Lucy, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me, Bianca, and for all that you do to amplify Canadian writers. Thank you, Lucy, for that. That's lovely of you to say. And what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. Now, I've been wanting to get you on for a while because I've been reading your work for a while. And one of the things that I love about your work is just how incredibly literary it is and how it sings on the line level. So for our listeners, we're constantly saying that writers are made on the line level. It's all good and well to have this amazing idea and, you know, to structure the novel and plot it out, etc. If the writing's not there on the line level, you know, it's, it's just not there. And this is one of those books that you can just see it on the line level, how the writing sings. So before we get into the details of the book itself, can you just, our listeners love hearing about journey to publication. They love hearing about inspiration, putting it in practice to when the book comes out. So can you take us through that from when you got the idea for this to publication? Okay, it was a six-year journey, four years to research and write the book, and a year to find a publisher, and then a year to wait in the publication queue. I didn't know anything about bricks when this started. We had gone for a drive um, to the forks of the credit area to see the colors and to visit the Badlands in Caledon. And after that, as we were driving through the country, I saw what I thought was an old woolen mill. And so we parked the car and hiked over. It's just on the edge of the Niagara Escarpment. And I discovered the ruins of an old brick factory called the Cheltenham Brickworks. And my husband picked up a shard of brick and passed it to me. And it was different. It was studded with bits of straw and it was quite blackened. And we had a lovely little hike. And I took the brick back home and put it on my writing desk. And that little piece of brick spoke to me because I thought, you know, I don't know anything about bricks, but they were really important at the turn of the century because there were all these fires that were taking place. There was a massive fire in Toronto in 1904, I believe. The small town where I live in 1883 and 1884 had two fires that wiped out the main street. And each time there was a fire in one of these communities, people tried to rebuild in brick. But I wondered suddenly, where did the bricks come from? How did people learn about brick-making technology? Where did the skilled labor force come from? And I was in between writing projects, and so I started doing just some casual research. But the more I read about what took place in terms of local brick-making initiatives, the more interested I became and realized that there was quite a story to be told and continued to do research, went to Claybank, Saskatchewan, where there used to be a National Historic Site called Claybank Brick Plant, and they've subsequently lost their federal funding, but it was a living history museum, and it was a brickworks in Claybank that actually provided these high fractal bricks that were used for the launch pad at NASA. They're just incredible history. And they had rolled it back to pre-World War One, So we went there for three days and I could learn all about the brick-making process at the turn of the century. And from there, we ended up going to Scotland and doing quite a bit of research on sort of the Scottish economy, looking at jute mills, looking at the Tay Bridge, and pulling all those pieces together. It was just a wonderful adventure. 
four years of research. That is a hell of a lot of research. And so I want to pick your brain here because something that I noticed with myself and something that I've noticed with emerging authors is we tend to use research as a procrastination tool, right? So sometimes we'll get this idea and we think this is amazing and we go down the research rabbit hole and the more you know, the more you realize you know nothing and the further back you go and the further back you go and the more widely you research. And sometimes, you know, research can be just a procrastination tool as fear because we're terrified to begin. So for our listeners out there who are researching before they begin writing, how do you know when it's enough? How do you know, okay, this is as much as I need to move forward. And how do you know that this is, okay, I'm just going to keep researching for the rest of my life because I'm terrified to write this book. For me, my characters emerge from the research. And once the characters become fully formed um, and I begin to hear their voice, they help me tell the story. But when writing historical fiction, I can never start until those characters become three-dimensional for me. And Alistair was the first character that I knew. And the second chapter in the book at, at the Albright Knox Art Gallery was actually when I started writing. And I thought that the novel was really going to be Alistair's story. But I was partway through the first draft, and I realized Alistair wasn't capable of telling the whole story that I wanted to tell. And that's when Brody emerged, his best friend, and then in subsequent drafts, reordered things so that Alistair's introduction doesn't happen till the second chapter. But those two men came out of the research. I love that answer because one of the next questions I was going to ask you is, how did we go from brick making to the Tay Bridge collapsing in 1879. So just take us through where you were in the research process on the bricks that suddenly took you back to Edinburgh, 1879, and a bridge collapsing. Okay. So as I said, Alistair wasn't capable of telling us the whole story. And so as I was fleshing out the background for Brody, I realized he would have been born in the 1870s and then began to do background research in terms of what was going on in Scotland in the 1870s as, as part of that background for my character. And I happened upon the collapse of the Tay Bridge. And it was, the Tay Bridge was considered a marvel of Victorian engineering. It was almost two miles long. It was the longest bridge in the world at the time. Queen Victoria had crossed it. And when it collapsed, it shocked the world. And I realized that the Tay Bridge really represented a lot of what I was hoping to communicate in terms of progressivist ideology, the sense that science and technology were limitless and created untold possibilities for, for young people. It had the capacity to change the world, but that there was a huge cost to that kind of progress. And so when it collapsed and we began to look at all the reasons for the collapse, it helped me to understand, and I, 
I hope I layered into the novel, the downsides of that kind of rapid advancement and the importance of having checks and balances as we look at progression. Yeah, very much so. There was so much layering in this. But besides that, what blew me away was the attention to detail. I feel like, Lucy, you, I don't know, if you didn't know about bricks and engineering beforehand, I feel like you're an expert now. It takes me back to Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. It's just the the attention to detail in terms of how things are structured, how things are built. I mean, is this something that's always been a lifelong interest of yours and you've just developed it now? Did you teach yourself all of this in the last four years during the research? It's all new information for me. And I by no means consider myself an expert. I was very fortunate in that I was able to interview a civil engineer who spent his career building bridges. And he gave me some very helpful technical advice and then checked the pages that I wrote. And there's also an archaeological company called ASI Heritage, and they excavate historic sites, including brickworks. And they also read my manuscript and provided commentary on that. And I was fortunate in that I was also able to interview a local couple who had owned a brickworks in Beaverton. So I had people that were technical experts who were willing to check my research and to guide my own learning. It's so important to reach out when you're writing this kind of project and to speak to the experts, speak to people who know their stuff, who can check your work. You know, it's a different kind of authenticity reading to make the work authentic to the time, to the industry, certainly. How do you know, Lucy, what to include and what not to include? Because I've also learned that the more research I do, the more fascinated I am by things, right? You get so fascinated and you're like, this is so interesting. But you can't include everything in the novel that you've learned. So is it a case of in your first draft, you just put everything there and then in subsequent drafts you go okay this isn't 100% necessary it may be slowing down the pacing maybe I'm just putting it in because I find it fascinating what's your criteria there in terms of what you keep and what you take out I'm not sure that I have a real criteria to be honest but you're right it it's certainly a danger and as I was preparing for the book launch of the brickworks my biggest fear was that people would find all of the detail boring it was something that I really enjoyed learning about but I was really afraid that I had perhaps peppered the story with too much detail And so that's an ongoing concern, to be honest with you. So far, the feedback's been pretty positive, but it's really tough. Yeah, you know, and for our listeners, we're always saying specificity is what makes a story come alive, you know, and especially in historical fiction. One small detail can really make something come alive. So you definitely want to be doing that research and you're wanting to be finding these things out, but yeah, you know, it's walking that line. So for me, it's always speaking to beta readers and saying, did you find this fascinating? What did you find slowed things down? You know, was this really interesting for you? And get a wide range of opinions. So if you just speak to a bunch of engineers, they're going to be like, oh man, this was the most interesting thing I've ever read. Or if you just speak to brick people, but speak to other people who are not necessarily engineers or interested in bricks who are able to say, wow, I found this really interesting, even though I'm not in that particular industry. And that goes a long way to helping. So we're going to discuss your indie publisher and whether you have an agent, etc. a little bit later. 
because I like looking at all different journeys to publication. Because on this podcast, because we have two agents with us and we look at a lot of traditional publishing, I fear that we kind of position that as the only route to publication. But there are so many different ways to to publish and we're going to look at that. I want to now turn to the text because what Lucy is phenomenal at is writing dialect. She has an ear for it that is just so incredible that as I was reading this, and I mean, I visit Scotland quite regularly. My best friend lives in Edinburgh. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. I'm actually going shortly. And so as I was reading it, it was just coming alive for me. So Lucy, can you turn to those first sort of three pages? I want you to just take out the dialogue for me and just read that for me. Not all the exposition, all the rest of it, just the dialogue so that our listeners can get an ear for the kind of dialogue that you're writing. All right. I apologize to people from Scotland. I, I don't intend to murder your language. But if we start on the on the first page, we have a group of men at the train station waiting for the train to come, which doesn't come because the bridge has failed. It must be the weather, they agreed. The wind has blown summit on the tracks, and they're working to clear the way. Eyes were heard as the men nodded in agreement. Returning to their wives and daughters, they spread the message and assured the women that the wait would not be much longer. There's plenty of men aboard to help with the work, they said. It will not be long now. And thus consoled, the women smiled and resumed waiting. And then we have a young man who's prepared to walk the tracks to see what's happened. And this is a true historical detail. The group bent into the wind, the snow covering them quickly while they walked. A few hung back from the steep embankment. This is daft, said one. Turn around if you need, shouted another. I'll be fine if the Almighty intends, said the young man. And so then we skip ahead to page three, where we have Margaret, who is the conductor, train conductor's wife, and she's shopping in town. And the town has turned on her because they're blaming her husband for the train crash. So she's in a shop and the shopkeeper is not giving her any service. After some long minutes, Margaret cleared her throat. The proprietor remained facing away and did not turn. Is your soul no willing to take my coin? Dinna ye ken, your coin is no welcome here. And Margaret stepped sharply back from the counter. Perfect. All right. So for our listeners who are wanting to write regional dialects, etc., etc., what's your advice here? How did you capture this? Because for our listeners, you can't see it when you hear Lucy reading it, but we've got the G's dropped. We've got apostrophes in their places. We've got yourself spelt as Y-E-R-S-E-L. Uh, Dinner you can is D-I-N-N-A and then Y-E and then K-E-N, right? So we've changed the spelling, etc., to capture the pronunciation. So what's your advice there to our listeners, Lucy? How did you get that so perfectly done? What I did was read journals and letters and diaries of the period from the area, and I created a lexicon of language idiosyncrasies, if you will, for each of my characters. So there are 15 characters with large speaking parts in the novel. And I had a flip chart page for each one of them. Some of them were Irish, some of them were Scots. And each one of those characters had their own lexicon based on the words that I had extracted 
from the period. And so the first draft, I didn't worry about their language so much, but in subsequent drafts, I worked with each character's voice in an effort to try to create a sense of verisimilitude. I hope that I did a fairly good job. I don't pretend that it's perfect, but I paid attention to regional dialect, to education, and for instance, Brody. Brody's language in particular required a fair bit of editing work and polishing for me. He started off and he was uneducated, and his written language in particular was um, almost phonetic, if you will. And as he became more educated, his language skills and his written language skills became more sophisticated. And I tried to demonstrate that progression. When he was speaking with his best friend, Alistair, however, because they were so closely bonded and such good friends, they reverted to a number of Scottish expressions that they might not use ordinarily with other people in dialogue. And so I, I tried to show that movement back and forth for people like Brody, particularly. I love that. And for our listeners, Lucy's really pointed out something important here. Remember that a character's arc is not just, you know, inside. It's not just that they learn a lesson or they overcome their big fear. Remember that a character's journey in terms of their character's arc can manifest in the way they look. It can manifest in the way that they speak, in the way that they communicate. So all of these things should be paid attention to in terms of how a character evolves and who they become later in the novel. And this is very evident in here. Big question here, Lucy, is why the use of italics for dialogue instead of quotation marks? It's a convention that I discovered several years ago that a number of Irish writers were using. And I fell in love with it instantly, to tell you the truth. I felt that there was a seamless progression when I was reading books that had been written in that way. Suddenly, it seemed like the quotation marks, which... I was so accustomed to reading and and to using, created little tiny micro barriers. And so fortunately, Chris Needham, the publisher at Now or Never Publishing, was very respectful of that and said, let's go for it. And I really appreciated that he was willing to take that risk. I love that. And yeah, Emma Donahue, Canadian Irish author, it was so funny when I interviewed her, she said that it was in, I think, one or two of her books that she did the same thing. And she said that it's a one thing that readers constantly email her to complain about. She said there are so many things in her books that she would expected people to complain about. And what people complain about is her not using quotation marks, which is hilarious. It just shows you people will email an author in the middle of the night to bitch about anything. Right. One more question, Lucy, before we go to you publishing with an independent press. Can you go to page five for me? I'd like you to read the bottom paragraph from Alistair to the first paragraph of page six. So for our listeners, listen to the way Lucy describes setting and then listen to the way she describes place. Alistair navigated his way to the Central Sculpture Gallery. He did not stop to admire the marble forms, but rather kept his gaze ceilingward as he took in the light-filled rooms, the transepts, the workmanship in the entablatures. He moved quickly through antechambers and elegant doorways, noting the carved details in the crown molding, the exquisite finishing of joints, 
the fine polish of surfaces. It was the gallery's construction that had drawn him, after all, and not the paintings that hung on its walls. Clusters of visitors were grouped politely around the artwork. This suited him. He was easily able to slip past and continue his private survey of the rooms. In his tweed suit, woolen tie, and thick-soled brogues, Alistair looked every bit a Scot. Red hair, cut in short waves, framed his face. His eyes were bright blue and merry, and his complexion ruddy, suggesting much time spent out of doors. He was a man accustomed to hard work, but also a man with some small degree of refinement. He strode confidently through the spaces, intently focused on his studies. He did not notice those in the gallery, who glanced at him curiously, taking his measure. A handsome man in good clothes, and with strong, roughened hands, held easily at his side. Love all of that. You really know how to paint a very vivid picture. The space comes alive for the reader. How the character looks comes alive for the reader. And for our listeners, I hope you were really paying attention to point of view here, because what we've got is third-person omniscient. Because Lucy says he did not notice those in the gallery who glanced at him curiously. Remember, if you're writing in third person close, you cannot write what the character doesn't notice because the character doesn't notice it. But as an omniscient narrator, you can tell us what the character's not noticing because you as the narrator notice it, though the character doesn't notice it. So these are all very nuanced things to pay attention to. Can we talk about your time jumps and your time steps? On the podcast, we're very big on orienting the reader in terms of when the time is, giving them a date, giving them a place if it's different. And from the get-go, you teach us how to read this novel in that in our opening pages, there are big time jumps and this happens throughout the novel. And this is to cover a lot of time and to really get to the parts that are important without dwelling on the boring bits. Can you give our readers who are trying to do the same thing some advice on how to do this well? Well, the novel covers the period 1879 to 1910, which is is quite a long period of time. So time jumps were really necessary. And I, I wanted people to know where we were. And it seemed to me the easiest way to do it was to give them that that little bit of information at the beginning of each chapter in terms of the location and the time. There is no way I, I could have gone through that whole period of time without making those jumps or those breaks. And it just seemed like a very natural thing to do. And it worked really well within the chapters. So for our listeners, these are not jumps that happened one chapter to the next. These were like scenes within a chapter. So remember, again, you know, you can jump around and do these timestamps within a chapter. It doesn't just have to be chapter one is this particular date. Chapter two is another date. So for those of you playing around with that, check out this novel as well to see how that was done. Okay, final question, Lucy. Can you tell us a bit about finding your publisher, whether you have an agent, your advice for authors who are wanting to work with indie publishers? 
this is my fourth book, and it's my fourth book working with a small independent publisher. Now or Never Publishing published Stella's Carpet for me, and I had a wonderful experience with them. Actually, I've had a wonderful experience with all of my publishers. My first publisher was Seraphim Publisher out of Niagara Falls, and they published Eleanor Curtin. But they lost their Canada Council funding and had to close. Otherwise, I likely would have stayed with them. My second publisher was Inanna Publication, which is a feminist press out of York University. They published my short story collection, but they only publish, obviously, feminist stories. So Now or Never Publishing took Stella's carpet, and I had a wonderful experience with them. I, I felt that Chris Needham was very respectful of my work and was just delightful to work with. And so I approached him with the Brickworks, and fortunately, once he had time to read it, he accepted it right away, and I was just so grateful for that. I have attempted to attract a literary agent for several years and have been unsuccessful, but recently have partnered with River Street Writing, Hale Gattery is an editor there. She's also an award-winning writer, and she has a company that does literary publicity, and they've recently moved into agenting. And she has my next manuscript and is trying to place it for me. It's also historical fiction. It's called A Quilting of Scars. And so we'll see how River Street Writing makes out with that. They're very new to the agenting business, but they've been brilliant at publicity. And I'm quite excited to be working with her and and with her company. Yeah, you know what? It's so important for our listeners to know that there are so many journeys to publication. Not all of them look the same. I know so many writers in Canada who have had wonderful publishing careers, who publish regularly, who do not have agents, work with independent presses, etc. So, you know, look at all different ways to publication and don't just fixate on one and be like, okay, this is the only way. There are so many different ways. And I've seen that Now or Never Publishing accepts direct submissions, as do many of the Canadian indies that are so incredible. And many of them put out authors who go on to win all kinds of awards, etc. And these are books that sometimes big publishers have completely overlooked because they don't think there's a market for it. And then award season comes and you're like, hmm, there was quite a big market for it and you just missed it. So always keep an open mind with regards to that. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Bianca. It was a real privilege. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, 
And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.